Good morning, church family. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, thank you. So good to see you guys here. It's a beautiful morning. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's saying what food is to our body, I must be to you. In a single statement, Jesus used something that is as common as bread. Common yet essential to their daily life, bread, which symbolizes God's covenant and providence to his people. To remind us that he is, in fact, sustenance. He is bread for all people in all places at all times. The problem is, though, in doing comparison between bread now and bread in the ancient world, we have much more of an option on our plate or on our table, right? If you don't believe me, uh, Google the food industry. It's a billion, probably billions of dollars, in billions of dollars of an industry. Um, it's, it has its own subcategories, you know. The restaurants, the fast food restaurants, grocery, and all kinds of different um, facets in it as well. Whereas for them, the people in the ancient world, there's bread. It's the main thing that they had. It's their sustenance. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. What food is to your body, I must be to you, to your soul. I still remember the first time I saw, heard, and smelled my mom's homemade bread. Actually, you smelled it first before when she was rolling, you know, the dough. She was making the dough, the sweet dough. I don't know if you've tried this before, but don't try it. You, I've actually peeled off some of them and actually eat it. It tasted sweet, but it's okay. It's not as, as better as the ones that, when it is baked, right? When it's finished, the finished product. When you first crack the bread and it gives you that smell, it's like, I must eat all of it, but I cannot. <laughs> right? Bread that looks like this. I'm sorry, it's close to lunch. But bear with me. Homemade bread. The one that you put a lot of effort in making, right? The one that you potentially might have your sweat dropped in the dough. Too much? Bread. Homemade bread. Too much visual? Sorry, kids. Butter, yes. Butter, that's, yeah, let's say that's butter. And Parmesan or oregano. Versus the kind of bread that I like right now, or I, I, I find myself getting recently, is this 85-degree chocolate bread, as some of you know where the young adults are like, yes, do you have more? <laughs> this is this chocolate-looking bread, which, should I open? I will open it, I think. No, I won't. That would be quite a torture. But if you break the bread inside, 
you will soon to see this chocolate cream cheese with the perfect amount of salt and sweetness that will make you hungry in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> but it's still yet nothing compared to that homemade bread. The problem is, though, it's really hard to stay or to have that time even, right? I'm just reflecting on my own life. It's, it's tough to find the time to actually make good homemade meal or bread, right? Someone with me? Amen? No? All right. Somehow, we have gone so fast-paced as a society that we don't even have any time to cook or to stop and actually break bread as Jesus invites us to. He desires to be our bread of life. Somehow, we've misplaced something that is so substantive to a convenient. If you don't believe me, look at the, how many fast food restaurants are popping out all around us. We settle for quick fix. Watch whatever YouTube sermon, including this one too, probably, instead of breaking bread, where the king of the universe invites and desires for us to feed on him. Or perhaps there's just the fact that we have too many options to begin with, right? It's true physically, but it's also true spiritually. If you think about it, so many things you can watch, sermons, but yet God invites us to sit down with him. Significance of bread in the Bible. Three things that I found. Bread draws people together in fellowship. In Genesis chapter 18, you see Abraham using bread as a part of a hospitality when he shared bread with his three visitors. And also, in Genesis 14, Abraham enjoyed bread served to him by Melchizedek. In fact, in Jewish tradition, it includes the breaking of bread to begin with acknowledging where that comes from. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings not just the bread, but the grain that produced the bread from the earth. And you see Jesus in the New Testament acknowledging uh, beautifully, when he stopped, gave thanks, and broke bread several times. And you see that in the New Testament. And the third thing that I want to highlight for us is breaking bread signifies God's covenant with his people. As much as bread or manna was a gift from God to the Israelites, Jesus is the ultimate gift to us. Jesus is the ultimate gift to humanity. So I'm going to say it again. Jesus desires to be the bread of our lives. What food is to the body, Ellen White says, Christ must be to the soul. Food cannot benefit unless we eat of it, unless it becomes a part of our being. And it's in, the, in the same way, Christ is of no value to us if we do not know him as a personal savior. And then she says, she, even, she goes even further to say, a theoretical knowledge of God will do us no good. We are invited to come to know him. We must feed upon him, receive him into the heart so that his life becomes our life and his love, his grace 
must be assimilated into us, Desire of Ages, 389. We need bread for sustenance. Hunger is a gift from God to remind us we need to eat. Hallelujah. Because if we don't eat, we'll eventually die. But there is a spiritual hunger in our hearts that will never be satisfied with anything else than the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Today, I want to pose the question to us. Is Jesus truly the bread that we seek every day? May we all respond yes, and may we not lose our hunger for him. I am the light of the world. At my kitchen window, I have a little spearmint plant. I noticed yesterday as I watered it that the stems were all bent toward one direction, my window. My little herb loves light. Many years ago, when I was a nurse at a children's subacute hospital, I often cared for a little eight-year-old girl named Anne. Now, Anne was in what some would coarsely call a vegetative state. You see, she had barely survived drowning at four years of age. Many people would not expect any kind of meaningful response from Anne. But in my caring for children like her day after day, I found that they did communicate with us in subtle, although very altered ways. So one day when I was giving Anne her morning cares, I opened the slatted blinds at the window above her bed. And immediately, a grin just spread across Anne's face. Was that a volitional response, I wondered? I decided to find out. As I closed the blinds, her smile faded. I opened them again, and her smile appeared just like sunshine. Ever after that, Anne and I played a light game together. Open, close, open, close. I would watch for her beautiful, meaningful smile. A smile I still can remember to this day. It was apparent to me that Anne was expressing joy. You see, Anne, too, loved the light. I, too, crave the light, the light that shines in Jesus' face. When his light is shut out by clouds of my own misunderstanding, I wither, I fade. When I focus on the darkness about me, I become sullen and afraid. But praise God, he has turned his face toward me in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that God who commanded the light out of a dark universe has now made his light shine in our own hearts in the face of Jesus. 
I can turn my eyes upon Jesus and by faith gaze fully into his radiant face. I can now choose to walk in his light. The light that emanates from Jesus' face is the very glory of God, the love of God. When we turn toward his face, we are enlightened, but more, we are transformed. In the light of Christ's faith, everything that tempts, tries, and torments fades into the shadows. Earthborn clouds may arise for us, but they can never shut out the reality of his love light. It is real, constant, and strong. Listen to his words again. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Lord Jesus, we turn toward your light. Amen. Good afternoon, church family. Friends, I have an incredible verse, and it is found in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Have you ever taken a moment to stop and wonder what makes a shepherd good? Is it the tools that a shepherd has that makes one a good shepherd? So I need your help. I want you to think with me, what are some of the things that a good shepherd would have with them that would make them a good shepherd? Would a good shepherd have ointment or oils to help heal a sheep that's been hurt? I'm seeing some heads nodding with me. Good, good, we're on a good path. Would a good shepherd possibly have a comb to brush the sheep? You know, when they get into the brambles and there are the barbs that are on it, come on, the, the sheep are our money makers, right? So we, we probably have the combs to brush out the snares to keep the sheep bramble free. Another thing that a good shepherd would probably have, what about their staff? You've seen the pictures, the staffs are like are canes. It has the curve at the top. A staff was used to help the shepherd walk. The staff was used to help guide the sheep towards or away from where they were headed. We often hear about the staff. But there's one thing that a shepherd has to have, always had with them, that we often overlook, and that is the shepherd's rod. Have you ever taken the time to think about the rod? It's usually just a piece of sturdy, sturdy wood with a a thicker bulbous end on it. Friends, the rod has so many important facets to it. A rod 
was used to help count the sheep. Like Keturah, Elder Keturah mentioned this morning, the shepherd would stand at the gates of the fold in the evening and would raise the rod out to count the sheep as they came in, and they would count them. They would count each one. They would count you, and they would count me. That is one of the purposes of the rod, to help count, to ensure that all of the sheep were there. Because the shepherd, a good shepherd, would know if everyone was there and if anyone was missing. Another thing a rod was used for was actually when it came to tithe. When it was time for tithe, the good shepherd would reach the rod out and on every tenth sheep, there would be a cloth tied around the top that was dipped into pigment and every tenth sheep, the shepherd would reach out and would touch the sheep. And that would be the one that would be given for offering. Every tenth sheep, and there'd be a touch, and there would be a mark then on that sheep. The most important aspect of the rod, though, was to protect the sheep. Oftentimes, on this thicker end, the rod would have nails or spikes or some type of metal embedded into it, so if anything came to hurt the shepherd's sheep, the shepherd could just reach out, love tap, whatever creature was trying to get to his sheep. The good shepherd, friend, is is not just a word God used when describing himself. Jesus was using words that the people would know. I am the good shepherd. I am a shepherd who will use ointment to heal you. I am a shepherd that will brush out the snares in your life because you have value. I, the good shepherd, will use my voice to call and to calm you. I, the good shepherd, will use my staff to guide and direct you. And oftentimes we pray about this, right? We pray that God will will bring healing to us, that God will bring us comfort, that God will direct us. But friends, oftentimes we're missing the importance of the rod. God can protect us from the things that are happening in our lives. So my question for you, friends, is, What are the things that you need protection from? David tells us in the Psalm, Psalm 23, that it is the rod and the staff that comforts. Friends, this is an example. God wants you to know that he not only comforts, but he protects and he provides for us against the lions, against the bears, against the things that are trying to attack you in your life. So what are the lions and the bears in your life? What is God shielding you from? What do you need God to shield you from? John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Amen? Amen. I have such good news for you today. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. These profound words are recorded in John's Gospel in chapter 11, verse 25. 
The setting is, is that Jesus' friend Lazarus is dead. Martha, the sister, is overwhelmed with deep despair and awful anguish. Because we too have been in difficult situations, we understand and, and appreciate her outbursts. Jesus, why did you take so long? Nothing can be done now. If only you had been there at the bedside to minister to him instead of showing up now to show your respects at the tomb. Jesus, Lazarus is gone. Martha, I'm here. I'm the resurrection and the life. As we pay attention to this story, we realize that Jesus sees Martha. He appreciates the loss that has engulfed her. And because we so easily become engulfed, we do well, to, we do well today to hear Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am, not I was or I will be. He's present, he's now, he's here, he's relevant for each of us. And in the I am stories that we have heard already, we can see that he is the answer. Are we hungry, thirsty, in need of a way in or a way out? Are we in the dark, lost, dying? To each of these, Jesus' response to whether it is a critical or a common need, he says, I am. Do you hear him now? Jesus is the source. He's not a derivative. He's as Iguasu Falls compared to bottled water. He's as an iceberg to an ice cube, as the sun to the flashlight on my phone, as a nuclear reactor to a AAA battery. He is, well, you can fill it in because you know most what you need most. When Jesus says of himself, I am, he calls attention to the fact of how easily we settle for ineffective substitutes. We fail to connect directly to him. Many of us have enjoyed this quarter Sabbath school lessons on the book of Hebrews where we have been encouraged to come directly and boldly to the throne of grace. Do we hear him now? I am the resurrection. You see, we know that everything on this earth has come or will come to an end. Full stop. We're so prepared for things to end that we've created a whole line of products we call disposable. We engineer obsolescence. 
But Jesus' words here to Martha turn us back from that short-term perspective. And we have the possibility, or rather we have the certainty, that we are made for eternity. Do we hear him now? I am the resurrection and the life. He is the answer to the inevitable, to the terminal. He is the way to forever. Do you long for that hug, that smile, that word of I love you to the one who has been separated from from you in death? There is one way to keep what we cherish most, and that is to cherish him most. The promise from 1 John 5.12 is sure and true. Whoever has the Son has life. Do you hear him now? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This, of course, is one of Jesus' most famous sayings. But before we just make it into a bumper sticker, we must notice that this monumental saying is an answer to a question. So what's the question? The question actually came out of Thomas's mouth. But before hearing the question, let's find out why he asked it. In John 14, Jesus starts by comforting his disciples. They don't know yet why they desperately need this comfort, but Jesus knows. He's about to be arrested, then nailed to a cross. But after the cross will come resurrection. After that, an ascension to heaven to be with his Father. And finally, there will be a second coming. Jesus knows all this. The cross he knows by observation and by following the Spirit. The rest he knows by faith. So how does Jesus tell his best friends that they are about to experience the horror of evil? See their beloved master crucified and at the same time tell them it's going to be okay. In fact, it's going to be better than okay. It will lead to the great, the greatest, most awesome good thing that ever happened, salvation. It just won't seem like it at first. 
So he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, Thomas thought he knew what Jesus was saying until that last statement, you know the way to the place where I am going. The Father's house was a well-known metaphor for the new kingdom of God. It also referred to the house of God, the temple. You know the way to the place where I am going? What does that even mean, Thomas thought. If Jesus is setting up some kind of rendezvous point before storming the temple and setting up a new kingdom, well, he must be talking in code. So Thomas asks him straight out, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And to this ill-informed question, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus could not have been clearer. You know the way. I am the way, he says. The Father's house, it turns out, is not a location a temple, or even a heavenly condominium. It's the household of God, the universal family of God who is gathered to Jesus. In Jesus, we have the way into God's presence. We have the truth about God's love, and we have a life eternal, and get this, it starts now. Now that I am really getting hungry, I'm going to check out these things down here. I am really hungry. <laughs> the final I am statement of Jesus, John 15. This whole discourse Jesus begins about how he is the true vine. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. If you were a first century Jew hearing Jesus say these words, you would have had a strong reaction. Maybe you'd feel mad or mystified. At least your mind would be filled with questions. Who does this man think he is? You see, this metaphor would have been very familiar to you. People being compared to vines and vineyards because Israel was God's vine, the very vine God had planted. You may have even recited Psalm 80, verse 8 and 9, where the psalmist cries out to God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root 
and filled the land. For the people of Israel, their story, their identity of God's work in their life was wrapped up with this metaphor. The one who first heard God say, I am, was Moses, the very one who commissioned, God commissioned to lead the people out of slavery and into this promised land. This was the name, the vine, given to the people who were slaves, leaving Pharaoh's land, who would now have land of their own. The promised land and the identification with the land became so tightly wrapped up in their identity that they could hardly separate the metaphor from their own reality. Anyone here who has lost their job or received a terminal diagnosis or had someone speaking so ill of them knows the reality of when you suddenly realize that your identity has gotten wrapped up in something outside of yourself. We can do this too. Titles and positions, what people think of us, our material things, our national heritage, and yes, even the land where we live. It can get so wrapped up that we can hardly differentiate. It's no wonder this metaphor was most frequently used for the children of Israel. And Jesus uses this very metaphor to shift the people in their understanding of what God viewed them to be. God's relationship to them was changing. Instead of describing God's people as vines planted in the soil of Israel, Jesus now says, you are branches connected to me. Now this is good news because if you read the imagery of the vine in the Old Testament, what you find out is, yes, God planted, God cleared the way and protected, but Israel as a vine often became wild and didn't follow God faithfully. And so for them, this imagery was connected with judgment. And instead, Jesus says, no, 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 you don't have to be the whole thing. You're just a branch connected to me. My righteousness, my wholeness, my completeness. You don't have to be all of that yourself. You just stay connected to me because I am the true vine the one that will never become wild or leave. I am the true vine. The question is no longer, do I live in the vineyard? Or as they would say, are you a part of Israel? Are you growing in Israel's soil? Or if I could be so bold to say, are you a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? The question instead was, am I connected to Jesus, the true vine? Is there life flowing from him to me? Jesus says that salvation and life and freedom and hope and promise is not connected with land or titles or what people think of us or what we have or our national identity, but rather found in connection with Jesus himself. When you read the scriptures, one way to discover what the author is intending and what God is communicating through this word is to notice what is repeated and in this discourse where Jesus says he is the vine, just in these 17 verses, the word abide appears eight times. In John's gospel, it appears 40 times. This word abide is something John wants us to pay attention to. It depends on the version that you're reading it in. Remaining, abiding, uniting with, living with, that's what we're intended to do 
to have our identity and our worth come from this one, Jesus, Messiah, Savior. Time flies by, doesn't it, Gianna? Mylan is 18 this week, and time just goes by. And today I got the gift of holding Ellie and her sister Emma, the two adorable twins. If you saw me with baby joy, it was because of those little ones, mom Tika and dad Jake and little brother Sebastian, big brother, but he's little too. But they're such beautiful, beautiful little twins that they brought to church for the first time today. And it reminds me of holding Ava and introducing her to you up here. I've been all reflective because tomorrow is her birthday and she turns four years old. Believe it or not, someone said, really, that was four years? Where did my four years go? I'm not sure what I did with my life the last four years because that feels like yesterday. But I remember us holding her little hand for the first time and the joy and excitement that Josiah had with his little sister in his arms and the great gift of holding that miracle. Every single child is a miracle, and I experienced these ones personally as my miracles, Josiah and Ava. And as I reflect on what I want most, more than anything, is for their identity to be rooted in Jesus. So that when the storms of people's opinions of them and when the situations in life come around them, that they are so deeply connected to Jesus that those things are outside but not within. That they would know at their core that he is their true vine, the one where life flows to them from Jesus himself. And I can imagine God as parent saying through Jesus to us, I want you to be so deeply rooted as a branch to the vine that no matter what happens in your life, you would know that your identity and your value and your worth are secure because you are a branch connected to Jesus, the true vine. Yes, it matters believing what you believe, believing the right things. Yes, it matters doing the right things. The fruit just comes out. But believing and doing come from being. Connecting with Jesus means that the fruit and the belief will flow from him. So many times, the struggle and the suffering and the trial burns away the distractions so that we can remember who we are in him. So today, we hope that you've heard in every single message a resounding turn to Jesus. Because whatever we need, he says, I am. Whatever you need today, I am. I am your source, your life, your bread. I am your shepherd, your door. I am. So hear Jesus say, your life, your meaning, your purpose, your value comes from your connection with me.